Everyone, welcome to True House Stories. I'm Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. And I dug deep and dark and hard. I went to his son because his son has done many interviews with me over the years. His son, <laughs> his son his name is Dan. I'm not going to say the last name yet because he's a great man himself. And I said to his son, I said, can, is it any possible way, any possible way I can get your dad? He said, are you kidding? Your father, my, he said, let me call my father. I'll get <laughs> So that's what he did. He got off the phone with me, called him up. And next thing I knew, we had Tony Prince three months ago locked in right before Christmas to come and talk about DMC. Those who are familiar with DiscoNet in the, in the late 70s and 80s, a disco mix club, DiscoNet, they had the DMC mix club, and he's going to talk about that as well. The DMC championships with the gold turntables and the scratch master, CJ McIntosh, all the names that came through. Tony will tell you all about that too. Tony's behind all that. I'm not clear on the mix mag situation because I always wondered if Tony was behind the original uh, publishing of the Nixmag magazine, but I'm going to ask him that as well. He will then help us clarify that too. So I like to introduce and welcome from the UK, a, a king of, of dance music, <laughs> one of the first initial presenters from Radio Luxembourg from the 60s. So let's talk about the Beatles era and that. Here he is. My man and your man. Tony Prince. Thank you, Tony, for pushing everything aside. And we're a little late, but thank God we're here. Welcome, Tony. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was the one who was late. I just had one hell of a day over here in England. And uh, in lockdown, things are very difficult. You know, anyway, I, I was sitting there. I was just going to have a glass of red wine. And I said to my wife, Christine, I'm sure I've got Lenny Fontaine tonight. Let me go and check. Well, and I know I'm a bit late because I, I originally thought it was tomorrow and then it suddenly clicked. No, it's tonight. So here I am. I apologize that I'm late, but I'm here. Tony told my assistant, Karen, he, I think we saw each other last time in, in New Music Seminar. Oh, and that was a long time ago. A long time ago. Tom Silverman and the, and the gang. Tom yeah. Silverman from Tommy Boy. Oh, yeah. they were great. Weren't they great days? Oh. The Marriott, I, the Marriott Marquis. We were just talking about that with another producer last night. I said they have to bring that back to New York because when they moved it to WMC, went to music. The new music seminar was still going on, but then it kind of petered out. And then it wound up all of us were always looking forward to going to Florida. So that well, kind of well, changed. You know what happened? What happened, Lenny? Uh, the Marriott Marquis didn't like how funky it was. You know, they're a top-class hotel in New York in Times Square. And suddenly, once a year for a few days, you've got all these dudes there, you know, the hip-hop crowd, uh, blocking the lobby. And it didn't go down well with the residents, the people who paid. No, I know. And so, I know. On. And so they eventually said, you've got to go. You can't come here anymore. And they moved the, uh, the battle for world supremacy to a venue around the corner. And uh, it just petered out. So eventually I went to Tom Silverman. I said, Tom, you can't let the uh, battle for world supremacy die. DMC are doing the world championships. We'd like to include this in our program every year, and we've been doing it ever since. Well, there you go. Tony, let's start from the top. Young yeah. man with mom and dad. We know you have a mother and father, and you started yeah. out. 
Where does music find the young Tony? Young Tony. With the oh, long black hair, the little kid. <laughs> I was born in uh, a town called Oldham in Lancashire, about 50 miles away from Liverpool. And uh, as a kid, I was at Oldham Art School from the age of 13 to 15. And I fell in love with music and I used to learn all the tunes. I bought my first Elvis Presley records on 78 vinyl. And uh, anyway, I, I, my first job when I left school was as a jockey, a real jockey, not a disc jockey, one that rides horses. Uh, I went to Yorkshire to a stable and uh, I went into the winter months and it was terrible. You know, it was freezing. I came home after Christmas and I said to mom and dad, I said, I'm not going back. So I hung around. And then I went to a holiday camp. I don't think you have holiday camps in America, but this no. was called Butlins. It's where Ringo Starr used to play with Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. And uh, they used to have a talent competition at this holiday camp. And I went in for it. Ringo Starr's playing drums, right? Anyway, I sang a rock and roll song, the Bebopalulu, a Gene Vincent song. And Gene Vincent used to hold the microphone like that. And then he'd kick his leg over the microphone and finish up with the, the mic stand at his back and sway like that. Bebopalulu, she's my baby. Anyway, I tried this and uh, I'd said to Ringo Starr in the afternoon, he told me about this competition. And he said, uh, are you going to go in for it? I said, I will do if you'll lend me your cowboy boots. Ringo used to wear these cowboy boots. And he said he'd lend me some. And just before I went on stage for the competition, he pointed over to the side of stage and there were the cowboy boots. So I put Ringo's cowboy boots on. And when I did the Bebopalulu trick where Gene Vincent used to kick his leg over the mic, the cowboy boot went flying off in the air and landed on a guy's head. And I fell off stage. Ringo Starr couldn't play drums for laughing. His head fell on the drum and <laughs> Rory Storm fell off the stage laughing. It was just hilarious. But it changed my life because the audience loved it. They clapped, they were laughing, and I got second prize, a boot polish kit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, really? I didn't win, but I came second. And some guys came over to me from my hometown and said, hey, listen, we, we've got a group in Oldham, would you like to be our singer? I said, are you mad? <laughs> and they said, no, come on. So that's how it led to me becoming a professional singer uh, and then guitarist with a, a band. They were called the Jasons. And then the Jasons broke up because we were offered a gig going professional and they didn't want to know about being professional. They, they had ordinary jobs. One was an accountant, one was a plumber and so on. And they didn't want to give up their day jobs. So I went solo started doing clubs around Manchester and so on. And then one day a new venue opened in Oldham, the top rank Astoria. And I was there for the opening night. And um, the band leader and I found ourselves standing at the bar together. They said, what are you doing these days? I was called Tommy then, by the way, not Tony. And I said, I've gone solo. The Jasons have broke up. He said, listen, I'm looking for a lead singer with the band. He's talking now 15-piece orchestra, right? So that's how I got the job with the big band. Long story short, the manager of this venue, when he knew I was singing with the band, he said, the DJ we've got is crap. Would you like to play the records when the band have a break? And would you like to help me to uh, identify the great groups we should book into this venue? So I had a real full-time job now. And then one day I recommended a band to him. I said, you've got to book this group to come here on a Tuesday night band, live band session. It was the Beatles. They just got Love Me Do Out. I'd seen them on TV in Britain. Wow. And I 
So I just thought they were fantastic. So they came to Oldham to the top rank that night. I introduced them on stage. And Oldham was packed with teenagers who came from all over Lancashire. The start of Beatlemania. It was the night that Please Please Me went to number one on the New Musical Express chart. That was the start of Beatlemania. And I was there on the front line. It was so exciting. I was in the dressing room with them because they shared my dressing room. And after the gig, we had to close the place down. It was just chaos. We had the police there. All the bouncers lost control, the, you know, the security guys. Sure. But the most exciting night. Uh, and that, that was my night with the Beatles. So, you know, claim to fame. I introduced the Beatles the night, please, please me, went to number one for the first time. Did and you then, actually announce it as the band that has the number one record in the country? Yeah, Paul McCartney in the dressing room before they went on stage opened up the telegram. He said, we've had a telegram. There's a few press people there, myself, a few fans. He said, we've had this telegram from Morris Kinn, the editor of the uh, New Musical Express. I'll read it to you. Congratulations, Beatles. You're number one on the NME chart with Please Please Me. So I knew before I introduced them that they'd gone to number one. And of course, oh, yeah, I said that. Hey, everybody, you're in for a real treat tonight. Not only have we got an incredible band here, we've got a band who've gone to number one tonight, this very night. Let's welcome the Beatles. That's historical. That's historical, brother. I was stuck on stage with them for the whole set. I think I might have been the last person on earth to ever hear the Beatles live because I was sat right next to John Lennon's amplifier. <laughs> I couldn't get off stage. It was just chaos. Wow. And what, and what, venue, was, and what venue was that in? It was the Top Rank Astoria in Oldham. Lane. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. So how many people, so how many people would you have in that type of venue for that size? Oh, oh it was a ballroom, what we called a ballroom. They held about a thousand people, about a thousand. But outside the venue was a place called the Star Inn, which was a, a, a series of roads that met, a very big area. And it was completely filled with teenagers. It was, it was just the start of Beatlemania. Madness. It was just absolutely crazy. And, of course, as we know, it just escalated from there. Now, did you do the, you said you did the booking. Was, it, was it their manager named somebody Epstein or something like that? Something like that. Yeah. Brian Epstein. No, was, a Brian Epstein. Epstein Epstein, yes. Yeah, Brian owned a record shop in Liverpool, and uh, that, he went down the cabin one day and he saw the Beatles performing, and uh, that's how they got together. He, they needed a good manager. He wanted to become a manager, and, uh, of course, he managed them and took them to stardom and started managing all the other Liverpool groups, you know, like Jerry and the Pacemakers, the Swinging Blue Jeans, all those kind of guys. Yeah, he was an incredible success. And not because he was a great manager. He was just caught on a tidal wave of the Beatles' uh, success. His, but his life was ended short, if I remember correctly, from his, the historicals. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to talk about that. It was no, sad. no, no. I see. You know what I'm saying is, is because I just saw the Bee Gees on HBO. They did the documentary with yeah. Harry Gibbs speaking about it. And Epstein, Epstein happened to be their manager as well. And it was yeah, a yeah. short period. That's the only reason why I knew that. Otherwise, The Beatles, the Beatles all went to uh, Wales uh, to a uh, Maharishi Yoga seminar. You know, this uh, Indian guy used to uh, have this religion. And uh, they, they went, they all went to this uh, event. And while they were there, they'd only just got there and they heard the news that Brian had died. 
Um, you know, we think he committed suicide, whatever. I don't know. But anyway, the Beatles were just mortified. I bet they would be, especially they helped. He helped get them, launch them into a whole different stratosphere. He did, yeah. So anyway. now you mentioned about you being the, not only just the booking guy at the place, you became the DJ and record selector. That's how I became a DJ. I got, play, I got paid a couple of dollars more a night, not just to sing with the band, but to also play the records when the band had a break. They'd all go to the bar and I'd go to the record decks. And uh, that was quick. You know, I really got into it. I loved doing it. And the one thing I noticed was that the audience uh, kind of cheered when the band finished. And uh, sorry, they, 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 they cheered when the band finished and handed over to me. They cheered like crazy. And when I finished the little 20 minute set and brought the band back on, they booed. They Are you serious? They didn't want the live 15-piece orchestra. You know, those days were gone. This was the day when people said, we want the records. We want the actual artists in this ballroom. We don't want cover versions. And I was there when that all happened. And then they moved me down to Bristol. Okay. In the West Country. Same band. We all went down there, the band, and I inherited the job of DJ. And then what happened was the Musicians' Union Remember that. The Musicians' Union came to see us. It was a new venue, brand-new venue, with a circular stage that revolved, a balcony all the way around. This one held about 2,000 people. And it was a fantastic venue. And I'd left home for the first time. As a bachelor, I got my first car. I was living in an apartment. For the first time, I was really King Dick in Bristol. But then the Musicians' Union came to see us. And they wanted to see that we had the right terms. We were getting the right wages. And we were being treated correctly by this company, top rank. Anyway, the union secretary who interviewed me, he said, uh, you're singing and playing guitar. And then when the band have a break, you're playing records, yeah? I said, yeah. He said, and you're doing lunchtime sessions uh, from 12 o'clock till 2 every day of the week, aren't you, for the the kids to come at lunchtime. I said, yes, every day of the week. And you're doing Saturday morning sessions for under 16 kids. You're doing Saturday afternoon record sessions. And then you just work every hour God gives you. I said, yeah, but I love it. There's no problem. He said, I think you should be paid more. Mm. So he went, he went away and I'm thinking, yeah, this guy's going to get me a pay rise. But that didn't quite happen. <laughs> Wait, uh, didn't happen. He, what exactly happened? He came back to me with a letter. I've still got the letter. And the envelope said, keep music live in red stamp. Keep music live. And I opened this thing. Dear Mr. Prince, it's been brought to my attention that you're breaking union rules. Keep music live. We do not want records played in live venues because it's putting trios out of work. Now, before records, you'd have a 15-piece band. When they went to the bar... A trio would take over. Right. Three live musicians. So that was what the Musicians Union was concerned about, that their members' potential was being uh, attacked by these black vinyl things that had the real Beatles and the real James Brown. You know, they, they, they were threatened by records. Over here in the United Kingdom, we also had the BBC, the big broadcasting authority here, they had the same problem with the Musicians' Union. They wanted to keep music live on the BBC. 
So the BBC inherited a deal with the MU saying uh, needle time restrictions, needle time being the time you put a record on uh, with a stylus, yeah? They called it needle time restrictions. And what it meant was they could only play so many records a day on the BBC. So that handed over the initiative to Radio Luxembourg, which was in the center of Europe, and it broadcast at night on the AM frequency. It was a terrible signal, but it was playing hit after hit after hit. It was playing the records. And Radio Luxembourg dominated Europe for a long, long time. So anyway, we, uh, we decided that uh, I would join equity rather than the Musicians' Union, and I managed to remain. Oh, the top rank said to me, Tony, if you want to keep as a DJ and packing singing, we'll pay you exactly the same as you're getting now for the whole package. And I said, listen, I do, but I want to be paid double. You need me. You really do need me. So if you'll double my wage, I'm a DJ. I will stop singing. I will put down my plectrum. I will not play the guitar anymore. They agreed. So I'm really Jack the Lad now. I'm getting big wages. I'm sure. playing records all the time. It's a fabulous life. And then I got on a TV show in Bristol. And then after the TV show, I joined the pirate ship, Radio Caroline. But before you go any further, I just got to ask a question. When you were DJing in those days, okay, was it seamless record after record? Or were you talking in between on the microphone, even in the live place? Yeah, you're dead right. Playing that. Lenny, you're dead right. We talked after every record. Because in those days in Britain and Europe, they thought a DJ was like those guys they heard on Radio Luxembourg. They talked after every record. So for a long, long time, I was talking and every DJ in a club, hey, that was, how are you doing now? You'd have a bit of fun with the audience, you know. So you're right. You, you, you've actually nailed it there. That was the big change that took place when DMC was launched. But that's quite a long way away, DMC. Yeah, well, we, but we want to make sure. But at the time that you're creating the art, remember, you're at the groundbreaking moment yeah. of playing records. If you're not mixing or not, but you're actually playing records in a, in a venue yeah. that was unheard. Yeah, and I, was, I had two uh, uh, de de decks on a, on a round plinth over here and one over there, different sides of the stage with a big round dais in the middle. And I'd be dancing while the records were playing with the audience, you know, showing them enthusiasm, right? And then when the record was coming to an end, I'd go over to the other box and put the record on and talk. Then the record would start and then that would end and I'd go to the other side of the stage for that deck. And that was what it was like. There was no like unit like you got later where you got two decks tied. Right, right. Yeah, so on. So yeah, but it was a development of the DJ art in clubs. Right. And, and that's what I wanted to make sure you clarify, because that's an important piece to the to the, you know, to the puzzle of the of where you, you know, where you came from, you know, that yeah. part and, and how that developed into where we are now today. So yeah. go ahead. Radio Luxembourg. We'll take it from there. OK, well, uh, before Radio Luxembourg, I joined Radio Caroline, which was the famous pirate ship. You've seen the movie The Boat That Rocked. I think it had a different title in America. It's the one where the pirate radio. I think it was called Pirate Radio. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The movie was that, that, was, that was our life. That that really portrayed what it was like. On Where was ship. that boat docked, actually? Where there were, were two, you docked? There, there were two Radio Carolines. In the end of the Pirate Revolution, there were about six boats around the country. You had Radio Caroline South, 
Radio Caroline North. I started on Radio Caroline South, and then they moved me to Caroline North. Caroline South was off the coast of the south of England. Caroline North was off the Isle of Man between Ireland and Lancashire. Uh, and uh, you had others. You had Radio London, which was a brilliant ship uh, that was on the south coast. And then as you went round the coast, you'd have other ships. You'd have uh, up in Scarborough in Yorkshire, you'd have 270. You'd have Radio England. You'd have Radio Scotland up in Scotland. They were everywhere, you know. Even if you go up the, uh, the, the Thames estuary, you'd have these forts which were built uh, in case the Germans came. These were metal, uh, you know, housings. And they became pirate ships as well. It's a very exciting time. And then the government brought in a law making it illegal. Uh, I'll tell you what killed the pirates. First of all, the law said you can't work on these ships if you're a British subject. That didn't really worry the owner, Ronan O'Reilly, because he had loads of Americans and Canadians and Australians working on the ships, and they weren't affected by this law. But what really killed the pirate ships was the law also said, if you're a British company, you can't advertise on these pirate ships. And that's what scuttled them. That was the end of pirate radio. Caroline South carried on for a little while with a couple of DJs, Johnny Walker, Robbie Dale, uh, people like that, but it didn't last very long. So then when we came ashore, there were two jobs. There was either the new uh, Radio One, which was a BBC new channel for youth with great pirate DJs, or there was Radio Luxembourg, which had been going since the 30s, which itself wanted to become more modern. And I became a part of the Radio Luxembourg team. Uh, there were uh, four or five of us that went out there to live in the center of Europe. And uh, so you left England. So you left England and relocated. Yeah. So where did yeah. you base yourself for Radio Luxembourg in Luxembourg? Yeah, the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg. It's where Belgium, Holland, and Germany meet. It's a little place called the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg. And I spent sixteen years with that company. Uh, nine years in Luxembourg, living there. My son Daniel, who you mentioned earlier, was brought up there along with Gabrielle, my daughter. Um, and then. Um, I came over to uh, London to run the station. I became program and promotions director, which was a really great thing for me because it meant I could come back to live in the United Kingdom. Luxembourg was all right, but it was a bit boring. You know, <laughs> a very conservative little country. But what kept us happy was all the bands used to come over to be interviewed. Queen, Elton John, Rolling Stones, they all had to come to Luxembourg to be interviewed. If they wanted a hit record, they needed a Luxembourg interview. They had to stop through. Had to make a stop through. It wasn't even stopped through. If they came over, they'd come on a plane from London. The station was a nighttime only station. They had to stay in Luxembourg because they'd have an evening interview and there are no flights back to London. So we parted with the best. We had the most amazing parties. You'd, you'd get a, like Queen would come out with Eric Hall, who worked for EMI, and Eric Hall would have this amazing expense account, credit cards, and we'd all go to the best restaurants. And then after the meal, we'd go to a club. Uh, we had so much fun with all these artists, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I won't go into all the different artists who came, but believe me, there were lots of them. Oh, yeah. No, we know how famous Radio Luxembourg was. Everybody around the world who's in music that understands what it takes to make a pop group happen of, you know, a rock band at that level or any band for that matter. 
had today you know they need exposure they need to have interviews you know whether it's howard stern or whoever you know whoever's uh giving them the exposure they're still the same you know well a little bit's changed with spotify that's taken away you can have a massive hit with spotify and not even touch radio which is not crazy I don't know what to say about Spotify, you know. Yeah, well, I'll leave that there. But I, 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 I started a new station over here. It's a stream, right? And it's called United DJs, and United DJs got a lot of old, old school personality DJs. And the idea I launched it three years ago was to bring back personality DJs. Now, if you've got Spotify playing all the tunes, why the hell do you need a radio station? You don't need a radio station unless. It offers something else. And what we've done with this, if you think about the pirate days, the Radio Caroline ship, we were changing the world of media for the youth of that day and age. The kids who wanted to hear records came to the pirate ships right. to get it. We're now addressing those same kids who were listening to music when they were teenagers in the 60s and 70s. They're now in their 50s, 60s, 70s. And our radio station is primarily playing music for them. We've come back to look after them. We looked after them when they were kids. We're looking after them now. They're older. So we've got this great radio station. And it, the, the other great thing about it is it's global. You can hear it where you are tonight. You just go on unitedDJ.com. And you'll, and you'll hear it, right? We've right. got American DJs on there. We've got African DJs on there, English DJs. We've got all kinds of Danish, Dutch. Oh, it's just an amazing show. I've got 32 DJs doing shows. It's amazing. I've gone on far too far there because you really wanted to know about these DJs talking in clubs. I yeah, well, you've, you, well, I have to give you some major credit. I think you're probably the one of the first ones to do it. Yeah, but you see, uh, as Radio Luxembourg influenced Europe and Scandinavia, uh, along came an agency in, in Denmark called the IDEA, the International DJ and Entertainment Agency. It was run by an English guy called Alan Laurie. And he knew that the kids in Scandinavia, that's, you know, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Finland, those four countries make up Scandinavia. And they got clubs in every village, clubs in every town. But they wanted an English-speaking DJ because they all listened to Radio Luxembourg. So they didn't want a guy who in Finland speaks Finnish. They wanted an English DJ. That would be prestige, you see. Sure. And, yeah, so Alan Laurie brought in all the hundreds of DJs in clubs. He made an absolute fortune. But they all talked after every record because the kids in the clubs thought that's, that's what DJs do. They listened to Luxembourg, and they thought that was the norm. So if you then, play, uh, so for example, so if you played a Chubby Checker record, let's do the twist again, right? Whatever. Yeah, come on, everybody. Here's Chubby Checker. We're going to do the twist again like we did last summer. Right. And everybody go crazy. Ah, boom. Okay, now we're going to have a twisting competition. Let's see which of you is the best twister. It was all that fun and games, you know. That's exactly what I remember when I was a kid. Yeah. yeah I remember it. Exactly. Yeah, same way. We all did it. I always had a theory uh, that the the DJs in America uh, started uh, mixing before anyone else because there were, there were lots of uh, 
let's say, non-Americans, Cubans, and uh, people who didn't speak great English. So they couldn't do what the English or American DJs had talk after a record, and they started, because they were too shy to talk or they couldn't speak great English, they started mixing records together. Uh, it's just a theory. I don't know that that's true. It's, I've always held that as a theory. But it's a good theory. My world, it's a theory. I actually have another side to that theory, but, um, and it happens to be around 1969-70 where it really wow. begins. Yeah. Wow. With Francis Faso, he, he, he actually was shown from somebody else, gave him an idea of how to put two beats together. And he was right. mixing Rolling Stones with Led Zeppelin. Yeah. That's, that's how it, and he was doing yeah. seamless, seamless things through the night to create excitement and create uh, drama. That's what his idea was. Yeah, you never know what's coming up here. You know, this guy's going to take you out of let, uh, satisfaction. <laughs> and right. what, it, what it is, I mean, the first thing, I mean, I had lots of DJs when I started DMC who had to understand the fundamentals. They all pretty well knew what's needed. And I said to them, look, it's one, two, three, four. And then you bring the next one in at a point where that's going one, two, three, four. It's as simple as that. You go through 16 bars and here it comes now. One, two, three, four. One, two, and you bring it in that way. But here's the thing that they all had to learn. You can't just bring in any old record. Don't bring it in on the music. Make sure it's the percussion, the drum. Because there's no key clashing going on there. But the minute you mix the vocals together, you've got to make sure they're in the same key. Or you've got to bring the drum in and then get to the new vocal by divorcing yourself from the previous vocal. So that was a fundamental lesson that I had to teach them. I guess having been a singer and guitarist in a big band, I knew that, that principle. Um, so we started DMC when I left Radio Luxembourg. And I left Radio Luxembourg after 16 years. I'd started playing mixes on a program I had on Luxembourg. I, I, I used to employ DJs on the station, and I used to get dozens of audition tapes from DJs who wanted to work on this fan, fantastic radio station. But then one day I got a cassette. People might not remember what a cassette was, but it was the little plastic thing that you put into a machine and <laughs> how do you explain what a cassette is? But anyway, I got this one and I, I, I religiously listened to all the tapes that the DJ sent me because I was a DJ who sent tapes in once and I didn't want to let them down. Even if it's just writing to them and saying, I'm sorry, you're not quite what we're looking for. But this tape didn't have a DJ's voice on. I couldn't get my head around it. It was just music. Anyway, I put it on the corner of my desk and there it lay for about two months. And then one day I'm leaving the office. I've tidied the desk a little and I see it there. And I thought, I'll have another listen to this. And I'm driving down the M4 motorway towards Heathrow. And I put this cassette in the car and then it, I got it. I got it. And I loved it. This guy's doing the beat mixing and he's getting the keys right. And he's a kid from Wales called Alan Coulthard. And I invited him down to London. I said, Alan, I want to do a regular mix in a show. I do. I do a disco show on Radio Luxembourg. And I want to feature one of your mixes every week. And he agreed to do that. Wow. And that's how DMC began, really. And then uh, it, these mixes became so popular. I mean, remember, Radio Luxembourg is only on at night, but it's covering the entire United Kingdom and the entire European audience. 
Scandinavia particularly. And I started getting these letters. Remember letters? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, that someone sat down with yeah. a pen and wrote. You put a, a, pen. a stamp on an envelope. Remember yeah. all that? With a pen, actually. I, I used to get lots of them. And uh, this particular activity, the mixing. So, let me have the date correct. Around what year was this transpired? 82. 82. So we, okay, so you said disco mix show. So 70s, you finished at Luxembourg. What year? No, I left Luxembourg at 83. Okay, so you played... The in- DMC in February 83. So the, the show on Luxembourg could have been late 81 uh, and throughout 82. And slowly we got this incredible uh, wave of uh, interest in mixing from DJs. How can we get these mixes? Radio Luxembourg has got static in the signal when we listen to it on our radio. We can't play these if we dub them, you know, we pirate them. We can't play them. How can we get a good copy of these mixes? And being uh, kind of like a powerful program director, which you are when you've only got a couple of big stations in Europe, I was very friendly with a lot of people in the record industry. And one of my best friends was an American guy called Maurice Oberstein. He ran Sony, which was CBS back in the day. He was also chairman of the BPI. That's the body that controls the music industry in the United Kingdom. He was a great mate. I took him out to a a restaurant called The White Elephant. I said, Morris, I've got this idea. I need your permission as a record industry to dub these mixes. And if we get that permission, we will save you a fortune in record promotion because we will do... It was going to be a cassette, right? We'll do a cassette of mixes and we'll do a cassette of new releases. And I won't charge you for the new new releases. You're currently paying promotion departments fortunes to keep up with the clubs around the UK. I can short give short tariff to that. I can make sure that all the DJs in the UK, and I do mean all of them who work in clubs, right. want these mixes. So he took me to the BPI committee. I took Christine, my wife, and we sat there quite petrified with all these barons of the music industry, and I pitched them. They fell for it. That same pitch, the same way you said it to him. Yeah, we can save you a fortune. These mixes, this is an underground thing. They're selling them under counters in record shops now. We can make them pay for it. The DJs will pay a subscription fee to get this stuff. And you will get free promotion. What now, was the example? What was the example you showed them? Like because the, you know when you're dealing with executives, cool of the gang mix. The big one was the Michael Jackson mega mix. That was fantastic. You know, they actually Sony actually released our mix. Yeah, they, they 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 asked me, can we uh, do our own uh, release of this Michael Jackson mega mix, which Alan had done. And I said, well, yeah, you're being kind to us. We'll be kind to you. So this guy who ran the promotion department, he pressed, I think he pressed about 200 records, which he was going to send to DJs. It was to promote the Thriller album. And uh, he phoned me up one day. He said, Tony, I'm in real trouble here. I said, why? He said, I've got to destroy all 200 of those 12-inch records. Why? I said, he said, Michael Jackson wasn't approached for his permission. <laughs> and, and he's pissed off. He's angry. Yeah, he's really angry. So they had to destroy them all. I kept three. I think I've still got two <laughs> on the Epic label. Sure. 
So anyway, that's, that's how DMC started. But one little ingredient I need to mention. I knew that apart from sending them cassettes, which within six months became records, I needed to have a newsletter for them. And instead of doing a renode piece of paper out, I decided to do a magazine. And I called that magazine MixMag. And from February 1983, DJs who joined DMC, they got two cassettes and MixMag magazine. I didn't know where we were going with this magazine. I didn't know whether I was dealing with club DJs, party DJs, radio DJs. So I, the early magazines addressed all of them. We were like looking after the industry of DJs at every level. Sure. And, and then it developed, you know, we started getting techniques, started advertising the SL1200 with us. Uh, two years later, we started the first DMC World DJ Championships in a convention. Whitney Houston came over and did her first ever PA in her life. A thousand DJs in Peter Stringfellow's Hippodrome in London. Oh, yes, I know that place. I remember that. Oh, it was a brilliant venue. Hippodrome. Oh, I remember it very well. Oh, that's, yeah. where, that's where Whitney did her debut performance. What a shame we didn't have iPhones in those days. We, I know. And that's something you have all that video right now to, to share. Yeah. Can you imagine? I've got some photos. That's about it. But it was fantastic. And a thousand DJs. Uh, so, wait, so let's, what made you, yeah, and Mix Mag comes off DMC. What was the spark? That you, did you notice that there was something missing to create this DMC? What, what, what was yeah. the deal? Something must have made you go, I'm going to do this. It was like understanding that the DJs were not like, they didn't have a central focus. They were fragmented as an industry. They were all doing different things. I just felt like not a union, but a club where they felt part of it. We used to get club DJs writing columns in MixMag. In the early days, you know, you'd go through four or five pages where all these club DJs would give news from their club in Manchester, their club in Glasgow, and then slowly their club in, uh, in Finland, their club in... And then, uh, of course, we started an American branch. And, uh, yeah, we just, I just... Look, I was thrown out of the Musicians' Union. I was forced to become a DJ. And from that moment on... DJing and the industry of DJing has been central focus in my life. And that's why I formed MixMag, to help the DJ industry, who had the world against them. The Musicians Union hated them. Sodom. I thought, we'll, 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 we'll do our own thing. And I think that's what MixMag did. And then it became a proper magazine. When we sold it um, in 98, I think it was selling 150,000 copies a month. Yeah, I remember that. Circulation. I, I started one in America. Then I sold MixMag to a big publishing house in the UK. Uh, and then I moved over to America. I lived in Battery Park City for a year and a half, and uh, running my American office. And uh, we started another magazine, and we called it uh, Mixer, M-I-X-E-R, to kind of emulate what we did with MixMag. But publishing in America is a real difficult trick. I just didn't learn that trick. It was too expensive. It was too difficult. Uh, so I, I, I kept the magazine going for about a year, and then I bailed out. And I went back to London. Well, I remember in that time you had that office. And I remember Bill Brewster was there. And I also yeah. remember, uh, was it Guy? Yeah, Guy Onodell. Guy Onodell was there. I used to pick up stuff from him. So I yeah. remember 
those days of when you were pushing the DMC vinyl pieces and that mixer. Uh, you had like a, it's like a, the first initial ones were like two or three pages, high gloss or something like that. Uh-huh. If I remember correctly, the first initial ones, I don't remember if it's exactly that, but I do remember you were very informative with everyone that you were pushing for who yeah. did mixes for you. And I had to give you a lot of credit. You I did. I, I had a guy called Daryl Resler, who was the editor of Mixer. I was a proper journalist. And uh, yeah, he'd put Paul Oakenfold on the cover, Danny, Danny Taglia on the cover, you know, and we were just working the DJ image in America. Uh, but America's just a hard country to publish one magazine. Yeah. But it was fun. Yeah, and adventurous because as you were doing it here, a lot of us were coming over to your side of the pond and having a, a lot of success and excitement at the same time. You certainly were. And the reputation of American DJs was enhanced by the pages of MixMag. That's right. Where, where we gave you the publicity, you know. We also set up the big brands, Ministry of Sound, Cream, Renaissance. Those big brands were created through the pages of MixMag. They started advertising with us. So you'd, you'd get like uh, Cream up in Liverpool who would take a full page out and they mentioned Paul Oakenfold is their resident DJ. And eventually, because of the journalistic uh, treatment of that venue, kids would go all the way from London up to Liverpool to see Paul Oakenfold. Paul will tell you that's how it all began, Mixmag, promoting his gigs. And it was the same for others as well. I know that. I know how important that was. Because yeah. I did hate crash. I used to see Mixmag and be adverted in Mixmag and Gatecrasher. All the big yeah. brands did all and the you, And then you had Shep Pettibone in America. He was a god as far as DJs were concerned with his remixing. Oh, his um, tape cutting and remixing. Yeah. You know, he had the Vogue single right around that time too when he came, right around that time in, in, in 1990. That changed a lot of things for the DJ. Yeah. I'm going to make now a pop record in a sense. Yeah. Bruce Forrest, I managed Bruce for a while. Uh, yeah, bad boy Bill, I loved him over there. Chicago. Chicago. Mike Hitman Wilson, I managed for a while. He, he produced records. Oh, I didn't know you were managing those guys at that time. Yeah, yeah well, not, not, not bad boy Bill. He entered the DMC championships. Right. He started scratching with a dildo. <laughs> he was a bad boy. <laughs> what was the inception for that? to create that DMC championship thing? Well, it, it started at Stringfellow's Hippodrome in London in 85. Uh, it was a convention, really, and there was all kinds of things went on that day. But one thing that started was a, a DJ mixing competition, and a young Londoner called Roger Johnson won that one. He was our first champion. Um, and then the, the next year, well, you know, cheese came in. DJ Cheese, he was a winner. And then Chad Jackson for the UK one. And then Cash Money came in and changed the whole game. And then you get to Qbert and Craze. And they, ad- they are advances, 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 as these guys bring new ideas to the turntables. And it was just so exciting and wonderful. Um, this year, after, well, what did we start in 85? So here we go, 35 years. 35 of World DJ Championships. That's how long we've been going. Um, And this year we thought, hello, we're in trouble. We can't do live gigs. 
you know, Rain, Technics, Pioneer DJ, Serato, they can't, they can't promote their products this year because we can't do live gigs. Right. I mean, normally every country where we're active has live events and they have their national championships. And then they send on an aeroplane their national champion to our world finals. But with COVID, we couldn't do that. So we've been running an online competition for a few years, and we thought, you know what? We've got to expand this now to every country in the world. And then word went out to all the DJs in every country in the world that this year we're going to unlock you. You're not going to be limited to giving in to COVID. You're actually going to be able to film yourself, enter the DMC championships, whichever country you live in. I mean, it always been limited to certain countries, but now the online live world championship opened every country in the world. And I think this year, considering it was short notice to let people know this is what they had to do, I think we had 350 DJs entered. Oh, wow. Yeah, and the standard is so high. Um, and, and we managed so what did it take to get into the DMC championships? What, what? Oh, well, this is the point, you see. All you need to do is film yourself and enter. Anybody could enter at the early stages, right? And then we went into national championships. So you might have half a dozen DJs from Norway. You might have uh, 20 DJs from America. You might have eight DJs from the UK. So they all got put into blocks of their own country. And then we got DJs, the world champions, to judge each of those you know Cutmaster Swift still works for me. Oh really? Yeah, wow. he still works for me and he's absolutely brilliant, you know. And he organizes all the former world champions to come and vote and judge the winners of each national event. And then finally you you you're down to about eight countries. You decide to put the eight best countries into the world final all online. Now they've got a couple of weeks to record a brand new world final entry this time whereas in the past they've done two minutes then they did four minutes now they're doing six minutes and it was important that nobody saw their six minute before they all went online together right because you know what djs are like they'll see somebody doing something special and they'll copy it so we did we wanted to avoid that and uh, so we on a certain date and time these finalists all came online and we've got people like Qbert and Craze and all the guys, you know, the world champions, the French champions, all watching these performances and giving their top 10 votes. So you'd give 10 points for their number one, down to one point for their number 10, and then you'd add them all up and see who was the world champion. It was as simple as that. And we had Technics back. Technics were the first sponsor of this, and they were back with us. And Pioneer DJ, because of Christy Z. Uh, who runs DMC America. She was keen to bring Pioneer DJ in, and we managed to do that, which was quite a miracle, really, because they're the number one competitor with Technics. Oh, yeah. We had Technics, we had Pioneer DJ. Rain wouldn't come in this year. They've been our main sponsor for years. Why wouldn't they come in? They wouldn't come in because they preferred live activity where DJs could touch their products, play with it, like they've done for the years that they've been the sponsor. I couldn't change their mind. 
Uh, I think they were really, really sorry they didn't because it turned out to be a fantastic event. So now there you go. I, I don't know whether COVID's going to go away this next year or whether we're going to keep it online. But at least we unlocked the DJs. I'm pleased about that. Tony, if somebody wins your championship, okay, and they're unknown and now become known, what's their life-changing thing for them with this? What happens to them? It varies from DJ to DJ country to country. Um, I think most of the American champions have made a great living out of it. They become legends. They can tour. They won't do the scratch performances that they do in the world championships. They'll do ordinary gigs, you know, playing music to make people dance, maybe do a little bit of a show. So that's what they can do. They can build themselves as a world champion. They're going to get gigs. They're going to earn money. And then hopefully, you know, because... The way they play with music shows you that they've got a musical brain. They can then produce music. They can make their own tracks. They can work with artists. The world's an oyster, really. 